This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we head back in time to learn how the state legislature operated during the 1918 flu pandemic. It was the perfect breeding ground for disease, and that wasn't really anything that state officials seemed to pay attention to. We'll have more on the differences between now and then. Plus, we'll hear a local perspective on the military coup unfolding in Myanmar. Those stories and more, just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. With the state legislative session now in full swing, lawmakers are looking to address some of the pain points that came from or were made worse by the pandemic. One of the issues lawmakers are looking at is whether or not students should be required to take standardized tests. On Monday, the Biden administration took a stance on the matter and said that states must administer federally required tests. But a bill introduced here in Colorado last week seeks to suspend most standardized tests this year. Erica Meltzer, bureau chief at Chalkbeat Colorado, is with us now to give us a deeper look at this bill and some of the other education legislation her team is keeping an eye on. Erica, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. This bill was introduced last Friday ahead of the Biden administration's position that came out earlier this week. Tell us more about the bill, how it would work, and how the Biden administration fits into it. Well, there are both state and federal laws that require schools to administer standardized tests. And so if Colorado wants to not give the test, they need a federal waiver so that they don't lose out on millions and millions of dollars in federal money. Colorado, sort of the the education establishment and institutions in Colorado are not agreed on whether we should even ask for a waiver So we have legislation that's been introduced to direct the state to ask for a waiver. The Biden administration sent a letter to state schools chiefs on Monday that offered flexibility on a number of fronts, but still reiterated that they think doing this testing is really important, even if it's on a delayed time frame, even if the results aren't perfect. They feel like they want states to still do standardized testing because they feel like this information is important to identify where learning loss has been worse, and where we should be sending our resources. When I talked to Senator Denzinger, who is one of the bill sponsors, she didn't feel like this closed the door on a waiver. She felt like this actually laid out a path of how Colorado could demonstrate other ways of obtaining that information. And at least one other state is uh, Michigan has also, their state education department sort of put up a trial balloon of taking a very similar approach to what Senator Zenzinger was describing in Colorado, that we could use tests that districts are already doing anyway, that students already take over the course of the school year. Many parents may have heard of MAP testing. That's what she's proposing using. And so I think we're going to see a number of states take this approach. And so we'll have to see if the federal government looks at these and says, yes, this will do, or no, we really want you to give the standardized test that you give every year. What are schools doing in the meantime? So right now, because of the current state of law, schools have to move forward as if they're going to give these tests. A lot of schools are being a lot more proactive about putting information in front of parents. If you don't want your kid to take the test this year, here's how you opt out. I got emails from my kids. school. I don't, it's possible I missed them in past years. I don't actually remember getting an email like this sort of advertising how to opt out, but they're sort of simultaneously moving forward to give the test. And I think trying to delay to the degree that's feasible to see if maybe the legal and regulatory environment changes. This year, some of the preparations are more complicated. Anyone who has a kid in school knows that sort of during that testing, that several weeks of testing, the school kind of gets taken over to it. And maybe kids don't go to the library because the library is being used for testing and schedules are different. And 
This year in some school districts they are having to pull back computers that had gone out to students for remote learning and get them set up for testing. Sort of quarantine and cohort issues could come into play. What do you do if like on day two of the testing there's a positive COVID case? So there's just like some more logistics to work out. And because it's so complicated, that's why school districts are sort of having to move forward while they simultaneously wait and hope for a different result. Well, let's talk about other education legislation. You've actually got a pretty handy tool on your website so folks at home can follow along with some of the bills for themselves. But what are some of the key bills you're going to be watching in the coming weeks? Every year, school finance is a big conversation, and it's made more complicated this year, both because there's sort of some efforts afoot to solve some of these big picture problems in school finance. And so we're watching to see what kind of bills might get introduced on that front. In the meantime, there's always a bill at the beginning of the session called the mid-year adjustment that looks at how many students schools have and makes tweaks to their funding based on how many students actually showed up to school in the fall. This year, those counts were dramatically lower, and there's other reasons to think that those counts were not entirely accurate. So Democrats have proposed we should do what's called hold these school districts harmless. We're going to fund them the same as we promised in the spring even though they have fewer students or even though they counted fewer students in poverty because we know that students are, are in poverty with all the economic disruption. And Republicans are saying, well, hold on, there's a lot of needs in this state. Why are we paying for students who aren't at school? You know, and there's some question about, should we be finding ways if, if a parent has pulled their kid out of school because they don't think remote learning is meeting their needs and they're homeschooling, maybe some of that money that the state would have paid their school district should go to that parent so they can pay for their child's education. So there is a bill about supporting parents in districts that have had extended remote learning. That's probably not going to get a lot of traction in this Democratic legislature, but we're definitely going to be having conversations around learning loss. How do we make that up? Who pays for it? Where does the money go? And then we might be having some bigger picture school finance conversations. There's also some push to strengthen education around media literacy and civics education, which is, I think, reflective of what we've seen in the past year of thinking, hmm, maybe not enough people know how to identify disinformation. Maybe not enough people understand how our systems of government work. There's also an interesting bill to create an alternative path for people to get certified as principals. We hear a lot about the teacher shortage, but there's also a principal shortage. And so this is a kind of interesting way to try and solve that problem. Well, another thing I know you guys are following is the vaccine rollout in the education community. Teachers have been getting shots for a few weeks now. What's the latest? How's the rollout going? I think the first week went relatively well. It's certainly not going to feel that way if you're one of the teachers who has not gotten called up from the wait list yet. As I was reporting, I heard a lot of confusion. Different districts were handling in different ways, like some were setting up clinics and others just told teachers to go sign up with, you know, Kaiser and SCL Health and Centura. But over the course of the week, you know, a lot of people got those texts and I think a lot of shots got out. The last week, week and a half has, I think, not seen as many shots go out because with all the weather in the East Coast, it really affected the arrival of supplies. There was just a delay. And so what the state has promised is that regardless of how much vaccine comes in on any given week, that they're going to set aside 30,000 doses for educators, which means all K-12 school staff and child care workers. So that does give teachers that dedicated supply that, that is not actually available to the other eligible categories. 
Erica Melter is bureau chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. You can find a link to their reporting and their education build tracker at our website, KUNC.org. Thanks for talking with us, Erica. Thanks so much for having me. You have to go back more than a century to find a time when Coloradans faced a statewide crisis as big and as deadly as the current COVID-19 pandemic. But experts who have studied the state's response to the flu of 1918 say history is not repeating itself when it comes to how state lawmakers are responding to the latest outbreak. KUNC's Scott Franz has more. If you are going to the state capitol, be prepared to answer a list of health questions and have your temperature taken. Do you have any flu-like symptoms, fever, shortness of breath, coughing? You're good to go. Thank Thank you. You'll also see plexiglass barriers and signs warning you not to push elevator buttons without using a tissue. In the basement cafeteria that normally sounds like this is roped off with yellow caution tape and eerily quiet. It's all because public health experts fear the Capitol building with its stuffy rooms and big crowds could become a hotspot for a virus, as historians say it was during the 1918 pandemic. It was the perfect breeding ground for disease, and that wasn't really anything that that state officials seemed to pay attention to. Derek Everett is a member of the history department at MSU Denver and Colorado State University. You had people who were traveling there for, for all sorts of state business in ways that people don't uh, need to to go to the Capitol specifically today. And all of those in-person things continued during the influenza epidemic. Everett says the legislature shunned social distancing and even brought in lawmakers from Wyoming to have a joint session. Governor Oliver Shoup went ahead with his inaugural speech that brought hundreds of people inside the building. And as you might imagine, the lack of precautions had consequences. There was a, a case in the spring of 1919 where the state treasurer at the time collapsed at his desk with uh, influenza-like symptoms and several other members of the state treasurer's office didn't have the same reaction that he did, but it, it was clear there was a a major outbreak of it in his office. But some at the Capitol were taking things seriously. Erlo Kennedy was a doctor from the Western Slope. He led the state's health department and said everyone should wear a mask. Dr. Kennedy did his best to try to convince people that these were things that needed to be taken seriously. And state officials just kind of shrugged him off. They would they would almost pat him on the head and say, well, okay, thanks, Dr. Kennedy. Thanks, thanks for your input. And then really nothing was enforced, certainly at the state capitol. After months of trying to convince lawmakers of social distancing, Kennedy ultimately died of the flu. State historian Dwayne Vandenbush said the government's indifference to that virus meant state residents were left to fend for themselves. You are out there on your own. If you don't have a job and you don't have money for food, you're you're up against it. You're not going to get any help from anybody. The virus also took a much bigger toll on the state than the coronavirus has today. In Silverton, they uh, tried to call the coroner and the coroner didn't answer the phone. They went down to see him and the coroner was dead with dead bodies all around him. Despite the devastation, Derek Everett says the legislature barely mentioned it when they started their 1919 session at the Capitol. There was a sense that it, it wasn't it wasn't really something that the state government needed to to treat as seriously as we've taken the coronavirus pandemic today. 
and I think that that's a sad thing because you know Colorado's infection rates and death rates in the influenza epidemic were were disastrous, incredibly high. Today, pandemic relief is a top focus for Democratic House Speaker Alec Garnett as lawmakers start a new session that was postponed for a month by the coronavirus. Our top priority will be to see our state out of the public health crisis and to work to usher in a swift economic recovery for Colorado's hardworking families and small businesses. Lawmakers will debate a stimulus proposal worth $1 billion. Among other things, it would provide free diapers to cash-strapped parents and expand broadband to more parts of rural Colorado. And unlike 1919, most lawmakers were vaccinated ahead of the session. But in a way of history repeating itself, mask wearing is not required for lawmakers inside the building. I'm Scott Franz at the State Capitol. We're approaching the one-year mark since the first cases of coronavirus were discovered in the state. It was difficult to know back in early March of 2020 just how completely the pandemic would affect our lives. If you had the chance to give your past pre-pandemic self a message, do you know what you'd say? Maybe give yourself advice on what to buy or what not to buy? Maybe information about a new hobby? We would love to know what piece of sage advice you wish you had known back then. We invite you to call our voicemail line at 970-703-4081 with your message to your March 2020 self about what you know now. Again, that number is 970-703-4081. We'll use some of them in an upcoming show next week. You're listening to Colorado Edition from... KUNC. In 1999, Denver's first African-American mayor, Wellington Webb, and First Lady Wilma Webb proposed a library to preserve African-American history in Colorado. Today, the Blair Caldwell African-American Research Library is still achieving its goal. For Black History Month, Colorado Edition's Tess Novotny spoke with senior librarian Jamika Lewis about how she collects historical items and documents for the library. She began with what inspired her to become a librarian. I always loved the library as a kid, and when I went to college, I met my first Black librarian, and it wasn't until I met her when I realized that I could actually pursue librarianship as a career, and so she took me under her wing in college, and then I got a position at my alma mater in the library. From there, I worked my way up. I got my master's degree in library science, and then I held two different librarian positions there before I came to Denver. You mentioned that you didn't meet your first Black librarian until college. What kind of barriers do you see people of color experiencing to becoming librarians? There is the financial barrier. You know, we do have to have the master's degree in order to be a librarian, and so that can be a barrier. Fortunately for me, I had scholarships and fellowships that paid for my degree. And so I was able to kind of overcome that barrier. And then there's just the the lack of seeing people who look like us. There's a lack of representation in the profession. And, you know, as a librarian, I try to make sure that everyone I come across knows that I'm a librarian because I know that I may be the only Black librarian that they ever get to see. According to data from the Department for Professional Employees, just 5.3% of librarians were Black in 2019. At the same time, more than 83% were white. What is it like for you to navigate that? 
there are moments where it can be tricky, especially when you work in an institution like where Caldwell, where our mission and our focus is the promotion of Black history and culture. Sometimes we can get pushback, you know, having that focus. Sometimes we can face different opposition to us maintaining that focus and maintaining that specialty. Being a Black librarian, I've had my share of microaggressions and racially motivated negative experiences, but all of that just makes me want to excel. When the library was established, much of the history about African Americans in Colorado and the West was in private hands. Why was that? A lot of people in the community felt like it was easier for them to keep this information to themselves versus potentially sending it to institutions that may not provide a certain level of care that, you know, they would like for their materials. And then it's it's a lot easier to have these materials in one or two kind of concentrated places like Blair Caldwell, like the Black American West Museum and other institutions. It's easier for us to kind of have all these things in a couple of places versus having them scattered everywhere. There is a certain level of trust that has to be built in order to have good donor relations. And I think that with institutions like Blair and like Black American West, we've worked really hard to foster and nurture those relationships in the community. And so people trust us. They trust us to take care of their history. They trust us to preserve this history and they trust us to tell the story. You know, we are professionals just as anyone else in any other institutions are. We're trained, we're knowledgeable, we're passionate. We know what we're doing. What kinds of things do people donate to the library? We get everything. We get books, we get manuscripts, we get pictures, we get art, we get sculpture. I mean, we get everything, political papers, we get, I mean, you name it, we get it. We have items of clothing. Yeah, we get get it all. And it's so much fun to learn the stories behind every piece of paper or every photograph or every object. I mean, it's, it's really an honor for us to be able to learn, you know, these stories and to be able to tell others about them. What are some of your favorite items in the library? It's really hard to ask a historian what is their favorite or some of their favorite things because we say everything, of course. I love the pictures. I love looking through our different photograph collections, our different scrapbooks. I really enjoy reading personal letters, letters from community members to kind of more well-known figures. We have a letter from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that was written to a community member who reached out to him about some help with Lincoln Hills, the Lincoln Hills Resort. Reading a letter that Dr. King wrote was just, it was mind-blowing. It was incredible. But I always love reading those personal correspondences because they really give you an insight into the mindset of that person and then into what was happening around them at the time. 2020 was a really significant year for the Black Lives Matter movement. How does the library document history as it's still unfolding? So we reach out to the community. We reach out to community members. We reach out to activists. 
and we asked, would you be willing to donate some of your your papers or some of maybe even some of your signs or some of your pictures? We want to document history as it unfolds because that's the best way to tell the story. We try to get it as fresh as possible. We want to make sure that people understand what exactly happened and from the mouths of the organizers, from the mouths of the protesters, directly from the people who contributed to this history and to what happened. We always want to promote accurate history and we always want to promote telling the truth. It may not be comfortable and it may not be pretty, but truth is truth. I'm talking to you during Black History Month. How are you celebrating? I am celebrating in so many ways. On my own social media, I chose this month to highlight people who I know personally who I say are living Black history right now. So I'm highlighting friends of mine who are entrepreneurs, who are librarians, who are historians, who work in different industries, who are leaders in their communities. I'm choosing to highlight them because their stories are just as important as kind of the well-known, the more well-known figures. Jamaica Lewis is a senior librarian at the Blair Caldwell African American Research Library. Jamaica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. On February 1st, military leaders of Myanmar overthrew the elected president Aung San Suu Kyi and other top officials of the National League for Democracy Party in an organized coup. Since then, there have been protests, and last weekend at least two demonstrators were killed. Because the military has imposed blackouts on some types of social media, it's not easy to hear the voices of the Burmese people about what's going on. So we reached out to a native of Myanmar, Liang Tan, who is president of the Burmese Community Organization of Colorado. He's lived in Colorado since 2011. Tan is no stranger to political protests. He was in Myanmar in 1988 when Suu Kyi and her party won 81 percent of the seats in government, but a military junta refused to recognize the victory and forced her into house arrest. We have given all people's lives. Some people were arrested, some were killed, some people disappeared quietly. In 1988, we make a peaceful protest against the socialist government, and I was arrested and put in the prison for 10 years. I was political prisoner in Burma. In those uprisings, as is happening now, the military also took action against its own people, and several students were shot and killed. Tan is worried that the violence this time around will continue and that much of the world won't even know about it. What the military leaders are doing right now is arresting at night. Those military leaders, they can do whatever they want. They can kill people if they wish. They can arrest people whoever against them. They start trying to cut internet connection. They already block Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So we are deeply concerned about our people. That is the most important thing that the outside world doesn't know. So why does the military have so much power? To understand that, you have to look back at the 2008 Constitution. The armed forces drafted that document, and in doing so, they reserved 25% of the seats in parliament for themselves. And according to Tan, that's resulted in one of the biggest misconceptions of Aung San Suu Kyi, that she has the power to stop these arrests. Aung San Suu Kyi cannot control the military. She doesn't have fully power like Mr. Joe Biden or 
something like that. And many people misunderstand her. But her situation is really, really hard. This month, Tan helped organize a 300-person rally at the state capitol to protest the coup and to call for help from the U.S. And he says that members of the Burmese community around the world are standing together in their calls for peace in Myanmar. In Japan, England, Germany, Netherlands, Singapore, we want to show our solidarity to the Burmese people inside Burma. We stand with them. We totally denounce the military coup. And we also demand to respect the people's vote on November 8, 2020 elections to free Aung San Suu Kyi and all the elected officials immediately. We have already decided we're going to struggle until we win. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we hear how the coronavirus pandemic is changing the game for basketball players and coaches at the University of Northern Colorado. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.